Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest today has lived a life like no other. The writer Jennifer Clement grew up in 1960s Mexico at the tail end of the Mexican Golden Age, next door to the former home and extended family of seminal artist Frida Kahlo. As a teenager, she moved to New York, where she inhabited the artistic downtown world of Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring and Andy Warhol. She was, and still is, a magnet for the creative and surreal. But Mexico had her heart. Since returning to Mexico City, she has written many books, including the cult classic Widow Basquiat and Prayers for the Stolen, which became an award-winning Netflix film. Jennifer was also the first and only woman president of the writer's human rights organisation, Penn International, in its 100-plus year history. The next frontier is ageism, you know, because I think women become completely invisible as they get older. And I think even more so now with social media and all this concentration on, on beauty and youth. In her memoir, The Promised Party, Jennifer looks back at an extraordinary youth spent with artists and revolutionaries and examines the way it shaped her. Jennifer joined me from her home in Mexico City to talk about playing in Frida Kahlo's bathtub and why Kahlo's art speaks to so many women. Why so much women's art and creativity is still sidelined and how she developed a passion ethic, not a work ethic. We also discussed rebellion, fearlessness, running away, the power of girlfriends, how acting on dreams can change your life, and why her mother has been taking HRT for 50, yes, 5-0 years. So how old were you when you were first published? Um, well, I first had poems published 
So that would have been in my early 20s. I was having beginning to have poetry published and some of the Suzanne poems, the Widow Basquiat poems. And then I would have had uh, Widow Basquiat published when I was about uh, 30, more or less, 31, around there. Because um, so much of this book as well, I think, is about women's creativity, isn't it? And women as artists and women's art being sidelined. When do you, when did you first become aware of that, do you think? I think I was very aware of it in my mother, for example, because my mother's uh, a painter and uh, was always very artistic. And when she began to take it seriously, it was just very clear that that she wasn't getting the opportunities that the men were getting that were around her that became extremely famous. That point where your parents split up um, and your mother kind of absolutely immerses herself in her art as if she's, I don't know, I think you say making up for lost time or almost running away from something. That's what I, that's what I witnessed, you know, that that was the catalyst that allowed her to take herself very seriously. And she made that decision. And that's why I say, even though it was very hard to live in that house, because suddenly it was a household. I mean, where we literally, if you ask any of my friends that, cause I even asked them, am I right? There was nothing in the refrigerator. You know, there was like an abandonment, but at the same time, it was important for me to say that it wasn't a lesson in a work ethic. It was a lesson in a passion ethic. And that was very clear to me that, that she had given herself into this passion. What struck me is, is because, and I think even now, but not so much, obviously, as, as back then in, in the, would that have been the 60s or maybe early 70s? Yeah, it would be um, early 70s, the divorce, 1970. Yeah. I mean, women just weren't allowed to devote themselves to their passions, were they? It just wasn't. No allowed for the fridge to be empty because your mother'd been painting. I don't think it's still allowed. <laughs> no, no, I think, no, I don't yeah. think so. And we still have such a long way to go. I mean, I love it that you have this podcast. I think it's really important. So when I was elected president of Penn, um, I was the only woman elected in a hundred years and I'm still the only woman who's been president. Mm. So for me, it was very important to address women writers and the role of women writers in the world. And so we did several studies and little things that you don't really think of. For example, it's very rare for a woman's writing to be compared to a man's writing. You know, so they'll tell mm. a woman, oh, you're like Flannery O'Connor, but they won't tell her, oh, you're like Faulkner. And then sort of the most uh, damning thing that we found out in Penn in all these, in this research was that even when women win prizes, the protagonist tends to be a man, almost in something like 90% of the cases. So still a man's story is the important story. So you can have a novel about a woman who's been abused or been in a domestic violence situation or even little girls. And that will always lose against the man's story of going to war or something like that. And so one of the things I did in Penn was uh, the Women's Manifesto, sort of addressing all of this, which has become a document that's left Penn. So that's been 
It's been embraced by many organizations, including the UN and UNESCO. It was just very interesting to focus on uh, how women writers are discriminated against. That manifesto was 2018, is that right? And that's yes. only five yes. years ago. That's extraordinary, yeah, and, really. Mm-hmm. It is extraordinary. And what I like a lot about the manifesto and was important to me is that it be that it address so much of feminism is very angry. And I really wanted to speak to the sorrow of what has been lost by humanity and is still being lost, you know, be it if you're a woman in Afghanistan or most of, you know, Africa, South America, Asia. I mean, it's still terrible, you know, even going to school in Chiapas in the South of Mexico, in the indigenous communities, no man wants to marry a woman that's gone to school. So she knows that if that if she goes to school, her chances of being married are slim. Whereabouts in Mexico are you now? I'm in Mexico City. And what made you decide to go back? Because, I mean, one of the things I want to talk to you about in a moment is mm-hmm. the, the running away. But you had spent so much time wanting to run away and then got to the States, you got to New York and found yourself part of this incredible community. What was it that drew you back? I think it's explained, maybe it's not so clear, but I think it's explained when I talk in the chapter about Julio Cortázar, the great Argentine writer, about our views of the United States and the fear that we felt in Mexico and Central and South America toward the values of the United States and how commercial it was and how everything was about how many books did you sell and, you know, how how much is your art worth? And there was a real sense of the threat of that being the measure of what you were doing. Hmm. So I think, and I, I don't think, I mean, I know for sure that I was really able to become the writer that I became and the poet that I became by leaving the United States. I think I would have found that so stifling to be worried about, you know, the gatekeepers, you know, did I get into the New Yorker? Did I get into this, you know, all of that value system? I think it would have been hard for my freedom. And in Mexico, I was able to have the freedom of not worrying about those things. I mean, we're having this conversation in what is effectively New Year's resolution season, (laughs) aren't we? Yes. And all of the jargon, all of the stuff that's being bandied around is self-optimization and productivity. And that really speaks to what you're talking about, doesn't it? That bigger, faster, more thing. Which I think that can be very hard if you're a creative person, because that gets in your head. And the only thing that should be in your head is saying what you need to say in whatever strange way that you want to say it. And either it will be received or it won't. But I just don't think you can sit down and work thinking of all that. And I think that can happen. And that can create even self-censorship. I mean, the other thing I did in, in Penn, which I'm really happy about was the imagination manifesto. So one thing that really worries me nowadays is that this pressure to only write from your experience or to only write from your group, or, I mean, that's creating tremendous self-censorship in young writers and young artists. And I always give the example when I teach of James Baldwin, who was a man, 
And he was also homosexual. So I don't even know if he ever had a relationship with a woman, but his scene of uh, giving birth in Beale Street, it's the most beautiful birthing scene I've ever read. I just think that the imagination, uh, you need to be imagined things. I mean, you, you, you know, if we hadn't imagined going to the moon, we would not have achieved the moon, the going there. Just like we have to imagine peace in all these places and, um, and in our work, of course. Since you've been back in Mexico and you were, before you were president of Penn International, you were president of Penn Mexico, weren't you? And yeah. at that time you were, you had your tires slashed and cables shredded in your house and you had to leave your house. And then when you wrote prayers for the stolen, you actually had to leave the country. Yeah. Are you conflicted? In what sense do you mean? I mean, you, with your relationship with Mexico, on, on the one hand, it gives you freedom. Being there has given you professional freedom. But on the other hand, you've also been subject to violence, threatened mm-hmm. for speaking out. Do you see what I mean? No, I don't think so, because I think I see them as two different things. Um, one of the reasons I had to leave the country was I did so much research for prayers for the stolen. I mean, it is a work of fiction, but really, I mean, it's an iceberg. I mean, underneath it is this huge amount of research. And so what happened was sort of the equivalent of the Guardian or something like that for Mexico. Uh published the whole chapter on the ranches in the north of Mexico, where it may be that the girls are taken, some are taken. And uh, for some reason, this, this magazine, news magazine, published that chapter in their news section right. instead of their cultural section. And to this day, I would love to know who made that editorial decision. But they obviously could see that I knew what I was talking about, but it was... I think it was the wrong decision to do that. But I left for a while, for a couple of months, just to make sure it was okay to come back. But I think that sort of advocating for for social issues that you care about doesn't make you love the country less. Maybe it makes you even love it more. So I always think of prayers for the stolen as a kind of requiem for Mexico. So it's a song of love too. What made you decide now at this point in your life to write The Promised Land? The Promised Party? Yeah. Oh, The good. Promised it Party, the prom- sorry. That's the echo. You have the echo. That's, that's, for me, that's the echo. Yes, of course, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> I think it has to do with my age and because of my age, being able to look back on my life and realizing that it really was exceptional and that that was such an amazing time in Mexico and that I just have the dust of that gold on my fingertips. You know, I was young. So, but I do have that dust still on me. And in many ways that Mexico is gone. I mean, it's sort of there and it's, and it's not there. So I felt that I should write about it. And then also because of my age, I mean, I wrote, uh, I wrote Widow Basquiat, really from a place of innocence, because Jean-Michel wasn't this huge figure he is today. I wrote that in 1997 and everybody rejected it, as you know. And so Canongate published it in 2000. So it had already been written quite a few years before it came out. And so now at this age, looking back, I didn't realize it then, but why did I fall into all of that in New York? I mean, yes, because we were all in the Lower East Side working and this and that. But I think 
coming from this very intensely artistic world in Mexico, it meant that not only was I open to that world, I was seeking it out. I was searching for it. And I don't think I could have seen that without the perspective of time. And then thinking, you know, I thought about it a lot. Do I write about New York? Was Widow Basquiat enough? Do I need to write more about that? But then as it all came together, I realized there's so much of a tapestry in my life about the two cities. And I'm always sort of pulling a thread from one and knotting it in New York and pulling a thread from New York and knotting it in Mexico City. And also these are my stories. So Widow Basquiat uh, has a few of my stories, but mostly they're Suzanne's stories. So I got to New York in 78. Suzanne didn't get to New York until 1980. So I was already great friends with Keith Haring, with Don D, with Colette. So that it was sort of this kind of feeling that, especially the Mexico part, that if I didn't write it, it would be lost all that time. I mean, it's the most, I can't even think, the, I can't even think the word that would do it justice because your images are so... I mean, I've just, my vocabulary is just totally letting me down here, but it's such an extraordinary childhood. And I'm sure it seems more so now because of, I'm not sure that cult is the right word. And if indeed we would even use the word cult, if Frida Kahlo were a man. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> but the, let's say community that has grown up around Frida Kahlo you know, it seems now astonishing to someone like so many women who's a bit obsessed with Frida Kahlo to have yeah. grown up on the fringes of that, you know, more or less next door to her house and friends with her. What with was all her world. Yeah, friends yeah. with all her world and still friends with all her world, except for Aline, my great, great friend who died. Uh, in fact, today I'm having a coffee with Pedro Diego, who was Ruth Maria's um, brother. I, I think... So I have written, I can't remember where, but somewhere I wrote, did Diego become Frida's husband? Mm -hmm. And when did Frida stop being Diego's wife? And I mean, just the fact that on the book, that subtitle says Kahlo instead of Rivera. It's a, it, it shows the shift because he was always the more famous and the, the toast of the town everywhere. And Frida was his wife that he married twice, that was, you know, very fragile soul. But I think what happened with Frida is that if we look at the history of art, we've always had men painting women and deciding what women are. And I think the love that especially women that we all feel for Frida is that she painted our feelings. She, pa she painted how love can completely make us sort of mad and blind. And she also painted women's pain. I mean, literally, you know, be it blood going down your leg, an abortion, menstruation, you know, like really graphic, that kind of pain. So the complexity of all her world is new. And it also wasn't women idolized as these beautiful goddesses. It was like this, this is what it is. And I think that that's what makes her so compelling and even slightly saint-like, slightly. Mm. There's a, a little bit yeah. of the cult that you speak of. It's almost touching on that because she suffered so much and she did. There are elements of her suffering that as women, we can all relate to. Yeah. So there's a quote, I think, um, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong from Irene, De, De, is it De Bojas? De Bojas. 
the book. The book. Yeah. It says that Frida is a mirror. And yeah. Every woman sees herself in Frida. And I think that's, you know, what you just said. So, it's so, true. so true. And it was so, I mean, when she was painting those self portraits and, you know, and she was in the bath that you played in as a child, you know, that just wasn't done. People, women didn't speak about that, let alone. Yeah, remarkable. Paint. Yeah, paint it. Exactly. Yeah. And also her, her her way of loving Diego. I mean, if you send me your email, I can send you a letter that she wrote to Diego, um, which I often use when I teach description of character and things like that, is that she's not focused on what is beautiful and wondrous about him. It's, it's really a, a letter about loving, loving him fat and loving him toad-like, but written in the most charming way, uh, how she embraced his all, you know? And, and I think women do love that way. Many women in a kind of um, blindness, you know? Yeah. I was going to say it's a terrible generalization. And I know someone will send me a message telling me (laughs) this is terrible generalization, but I do think that many women do love in that way and not many men do. Well, I'll send you that and whoever writes to you, you can (laughs) just send them Frida's letter to read for fun. (laughs) She can answer for you. (laughs) It it struck me when I was reading it that you could also have told the story. And in fact, you do tell the story in a way through the women who shape you at different times in your life, whether it's It's true. Ruth, Maria, Aline. Aline. Suzanne. Well, you're such a good reader because it is, it's, it's, it's the story of girlfriends. I didn't know that was going to happen. That was something organic that happened. But when I started to write about my girlfriends, they all became these incredible people I adore and and we're still great friends. I'm still great friends with everybody. And, and then there's a tribute to two friends that I lost Um, But I have no doubt if they were alive, they'd still be great friends. I mean, it's such a book that I didn't realize would be such a tribute to female friendship. And then when I started to write about the men, which are in there, but they seemed so secondary once I had written Mm -hmm. it. I didn't know that going into it. But once it was written, then I thought, oh, this is about a book about female friendship. Mm, It really is. I mean, is that something you think that perspective, is that something that's evolved as you've got older or do you think you were aware of it as you were going through? I don't think I was aware of it. I I always just think I thought I was very fortunate to have such great, even in Chona, even though Chona wasn't a friend, that was an incredibly special relationship who, who was my nanny growing up. And I became her alphabet because she was illiterate. So part of my interest in learning to read and write was to help her, you know, so even that is connected to the friendship with a woman. And then Ruth Maria, the first friend, and yeah, I I didn't know this would happen. In many ways, the book could be divided into the friendships. It's, and then when you go to America to dance, Beverly, and then of course, Suzanne, and Mm -hmm. it's, It's so interesting because so many of the women I talk to talk about the significance of female friendships as they've got older Mm -hmm. and how that has become a bigger priority in their lives. 
perhaps in some cases compared to romantic relationships with the men in their lives. But this, it seemed to me that this is something that's always been yeah, it's always there been. for you. Yeah. And even older women, because my childhood best friend who would be Ruth Maria, she was older than I was. And then the next friend is Sylvia and she is older mm. than I am as well. So it's interesting that at that young age, I had these sort of older friendships. And even, I don't know, you mean this, you might say, no, this is completely wrong, but even Waldine, your dance We had a special connection because she wrote poetry and I wrote poetry. So we had this, and she was, as, as, as you read, I mean, she was Neruda's first translator into English and they were very close friends. I never met him, but... She would tell me about him. He'd gone back to Chile by then. You danced from a very young age. And I guess, how old were you when you stopped? About 20-ish? No, earlier. It was very, I understood it very quickly because I had that dream. So I was 18. Tell us about the dream, if you don't mind. Well, it's true what happened. I mean, I just had a dream and I woke up and I realized that being a dancer I think partly it was because my life in Mexico had been so intellectual and even dancing because of Waldine also had this intellectual component where we had to study myths and create our choreographies based on myths. And we had to bring in our notebooks where we'd taken notes about, you know, if we were doing those ancient pre-Hispanic goddesses, we had to know what they looked like and even maybe the archaeological site where they were found Sometimes we did things based on uh, Greek mythology, but she demanded that we study. So there was an intellectual side. And when I got to New York, the dance was very much about craft, just the body. And so that dream made me understand that being a dancer was still like playing, like being a little girl dressing up in her mother's clothes and playing that she was, you know, something, a fairy or whatever, a princess or, you know, that kind of uh, cliche. I, the dream made me realize that I had to grow up, that that was, that, that was child's play. And I, and I, it was clear as could be. And as I say in my book, ever since then, I'm fascinated by people who act on dreams because we don't really do it anymore. And I've studied it quite a bit. Like in the Bible, there are 21 dreams that people act upon. And I mean, Moses woke up and said, I had a dream. We have to leave Egypt. And everybody's like, okay, when are we leaving? You know, nobody questioned it. So that the sort of world of dreams, we don't really pay that much attention to in terms of acting upon them. And, and I, I did, I acted upon it. It feels like now, you know, acting on a dream would just be kind of poo-pooed a bit, kind of dismissed. (laughs) It's like, it's just a bit of a nutso thing to do. Well, you know, You're so right, because in one of the first drafts, I didn't put in the dream because I was scared to put it in because I thought (laughs) everybody's going to think it's not so, as you say. And um, (laughs) but then I thought, but, you know, that's the truth. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's so interesting because especially early on in the book, you talk a lot about there are a lot of reference to what a rebellious child you were like I mean I thought it was funny but it's probably not funny (laughs) about your father saying to your mother break Jennifer's spirit before I get home but those are in letters verbatim yeah (laughs) Yeah. but you're and there's lots of talk about your fearlessness but your parents weren't exactly like straight down the line conventional well-behaved people were they No, they weren't. They definitely weren't. But I think, I mean, to me, what was very important about writing this is that I always knew that, that I was the child of the three that was difficult and that there was, that I was, I mean, I remember very clearly running away. I remember being, you know, punished and all these things. When I started to work on the book and sort of gathering research, what was incredible is my grandmother didn't throw out any of the letters from my mother. And no, and my mother didn't throw out any of her letters. So I was able to get those kinds of tidbits out that, that are real. Yeah, I mean, they're astonishing. I think I like, circled every single one of them. Um, <laughs> how do you think that, that your childhood shaped your own approach to parenting and being a mother? Ah, oh, that's interesting. Well, you'd have to speak to my children, but... <laughs> We're extremely close. I mean, they are my best friends, both of them. I have a boy and a girl. They're my readers. They're always my first readers in anything that I do. So I trust them completely. And just very different relationship I have with my children than I had with my parents. Completely different. Is that intentional? Well, I think so. I think so. I mean, I think the thing that I came away from after writing this book and which I've kind of known in a way always is that I wasn't very protected for all the reasons that you read. Even my father's alcoholism, you know, you're not very protected when you have a father. I mean, he was fabulous, but that didn't make you feel very protected. And my mother too is fabulous. I mean, I hope that also comes across. Mm, I mean, she's, she's an extraordinary woman on so many levels, as was he, but they were not... I don't think they were very good parents, really. Although in some ways, maybe they were because they were an example to people who were very passionate people and um, certainly in many ways had ideals that are important, caring about other people and things like that. I'd like to ask you about visibility and invisibility, because there's a chapter in the book where you write so powerfully 
the way that you felt that your well, you didn't feel that your body did suddenly become public property. What I was interested in is, did you feel as you got older, the inverse of that? I mean, I think the next frontier is ageism, you know, because Mm. I think women become completely invisible as they get older. And I think even more so now with social media and all this concentration on, on beauty and youth, sort of a lack of interest in wisdom, in looking back, in the creation of memories that isn't as interesting today. And the other thing that I find, because I am older, I find that it goes too fast. I need, I just wonder, you know, where is the contemplation, the meditation? When I was a little girl, one thing that I found in all, everything I wrote, it just kept coming up again and again, this this need for solitude, this need for quiet, because how do you find out who you are? If you're on TikTok all day and on WhatsApp and I mean, where is that silence? Like even as a little girl, I, I longed for that quiet. You know? Do you feel like you've got braver? This, this came up a lot when I was writing prayers for the stolen, because there was a lot about that story, writing that the research for it, that was really very dangerous. And I tried to understand myself and, and, and why, because people would say to me all the time, aren't you scared? Aren't you scared? And I realized that my indignation was greater than my fear, that my indignation that they were stealing these little girls that didn't even have a birth certificate, you know, it was more important to the police to have a car stolen than a six-year-old girl. So that indignation, I think, has sort of carried me in my life. I mean, definitely in the pen work, you know, that the indignation of what was happening was always greater than my fear. So I guess it's Um, that kind of rebellious side of me that allows that to exist in some way. Maybe. I'm not sure. I'm going to throw a couple of quotes at you from the book. You You say, I always miss the places I have not been to, the people I never knew, the men I did not love, the children I did not have. What do you miss now? I think it's that. I just wrote that so recently that it's still true today. That's all those things I miss. The great poet, uh, Fernando Pessoa, the Portuguese poet, he said, uh, you are what you've been, but you also are what you haven't been. So it's a little bit that. That's so interesting. It connects a bit, you know, the famous Diego Rivera quote about realizing too late. Oh, yes. About after he's lost Frida. Mm-hmm. I think it, oh, that's really interesting. I think it does relate. I think those ideas definitely are connected. I hadn't seen that till just now, but yes, definitely. Do you, do you think we know everything too late? Do you think it's a, a state of a human state, maybe? I actually do. I think we know many things too late. Is there anything that strikes you that you know too late? I think it's in the book, in that last bit about Aileen, the, the, the loss of her. But I think it is a theme throughout the book. So it's obviously a theme within me. So I can't, I don't know that I can give you specifics just off the top of my head, but it's more a general place within myself, if that makes sense. Well, it's very polite of you not to just tell me to mind my own business. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've written a memoir for God's yeah. sake, so <laughs> it's a bit late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but 
And last one, before I ask you the questions that I always ask at the end, you said, I always think everything happened to me when I was 11 years old. Do you still feel like that now you're in your early 60s? I always feel like that. It's so weird. Even writing it, I was just always having to think, when did that happen? Because my initial feeling was, oh, I must have been 11. I don't know why. I just like, oh, I must have been 11. (laughs) Is that because it was such a Mexico, that kind of the end of the golden age of Mexico that you create so vividly? Does it loom that vividly in your mind as well? Yeah. I mean, I cut a hundred pages out of Mexico for this book. Oh no, to read them. (laughs) (laughs) It was too sort of top heavy toward Mexico. Well, who knows? Maybe that will end up elsewhere sometime. It just wasn't balanced enough for the two cities to be a tale of two cities, you know, the way that I wanted it to be. Obviously, I really love Mexico so much about what I write is about Mexico. Uh, My children are Mexican. Um, I'm here. I'm going to ask you the questions that I always ask at the end. What is your emotional age? Probably 11. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that as I started yeah. to ask it. That's kind of, we've kind of. I don't know. I don't know if it's that way for many women, but there was something very special just about running before you had breasts and hips. You know, that freedom of being able to run in that kind of way. And then when you become a woman, then there's just all this other stuff that happens to you. And, and I think I remember that sort of androgynous feeling in a very sort of strong way, as if that, that was like an essence of me before all this womanhood came in. And I really feel it as an image of running, of how that felt, because I've never felt that way again, to be able to run like that. That kind of physical freedom. Mm -hmm. Certainly some of the women I've spoken to on The Shift have said that they, since menopause, they have begun to much more identify with their pre-adolescent. Have you found that? Well, I made a big decision to not go through menopause. So this is something my mother did. And so I started HRT at age 47. And I mean, this is information for women. Mm. (laughs) You have a choice to make nowadays. Uh, So yes, of course, I mean, physically, I, I don't feel very different than when I was, let's say, 45. But obviously there is a shift. I'm not going to say that there isn't. So you've been on HRT for, what, 15 Mm -hmm. plus And my mother's 96 this year. And she's, when did she start HRT? About the same. I just followed what she did because she looked so amazing and had so much energy and strength. Did she talk to you about that or did you go Oh, yes, definitely (laughs) talk to me about it. Absolutely, yes. And I've spoken to my daughter about it too. I mean, this isn't the place to go into all of this in a big way. Oh, it is. All the recent (laughs) studies, all the recent studies you bridge it because if you go into menopause, you can't go back. So the the latest studies are you bridge it, which is what I did. And also the nurses study, which is the big study that made people stop it has now been totally debunked. Mm, That's fascinating. It's fascinating that your mother talked about it from such a young age as well, because Mm -hmm. so many people I speak to say, oh, their mothers didn't mention it or, or if they did mention it, it was very much like, oh, well, we just got on with it. If you could see my mother, you wouldn't believe it. She's 96. And the only sad thing that happened to her is that she got macular degeneration, but she has the bone density of an 18 year old. 
She has, because wow. she's not ancient. She's old. Yeah. You know, there's a big difference. Yeah. yeah. And she's, her mind is perfect. I mean, everybody thinks she's 25 years younger than she is. And that's, she swears it's that. And I think she's right. So I just well, copied her. Sounds like a good move to me. <laughs> yeah. She still takes it. She's 96 and she still pops estrogen. Every other day she takes like two milligrams. Do you take the same thing that you took when you started or have you changed? I take the same thing. I mean, this is such a complex medical conversation. It really is. Yeah. But it depends on whether you have a uterus or you don't have a uterus. I mean, all these things are are very important to, you, you know, you have to do it with a doctor that really knows and preferably a woman doctor who, who's a, understands what happens. But that, but the thing that's important to know is that that breast cancer relationship is is totally wrong. And all those women, those nurses that were in that study were, had already been through menopause for 10 years or 15 years Mm. is when they were given the replacement. So what seems to be very important is to not ever have, have it happen to bridge it. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, obviously everybody is different and everybody needs to have their Everybody's own conversation with their so, own Yeah, doctor, I'm not saying very go do that. I did do it. So certainly for for women who are having depression or they're feeling weepy mm. or all kinds of things where they might be going to a psychiatrist or they might be, you know, having injuries or, you know, estrogen is like a miracle drug. So can you give us a book recommendation? It can be something that's been significant to you for a long time, or it could just be something recent. There's three books that can be read about the world of ghosts. And one is Wuthering Heights. And that book influenced Pedro Paramo. Paramo means more in Spanish, which is probably one of the most important novels in Spanish of the 20th century. Obviously, he read Wuthering Heights. He's completely connected to Wuthering Heights. And then 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Mm. which is also the world of ghosts. So he was very influenced by Faulkner, but very much an original. You couldn't have Gabriel Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude, without Pedro Paramo. And you couldn't have Pedro Paramo without Wuthering Heights. And nobody has made this connection that that the... The seed of the lineage is Emily Bronte. That's fascinating. What advice would you give younger women? I would say, remember who you were, the essence of yourself when you were a little girl and honor her. And who is an older woman who's inspired you? In many ways, my mother, for sure. Yes. She's an inspiration, complex inspiration. Yeah. (laughs) The best kind. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. What is your superpower? Getting up very early in the morning before the sunshine (laughs) and having that quiet and that solitude and that peace to be able to create. Before annoying people expect you to do an hour's interview first thing in the morning. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And last question, uh, how many fucks do you give? Well, it's complex. I care a lot about some things and I couldn't care less about other things. So I think it it fluctuates depending on the thing. Thank you for listening. If you love this episode, you might also like my conversations with Isabel Allende and Esther Freud. 
You'll find a link to them in the show notes. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. If you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras and more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.